Hello? Tony! <laughs> Cameron, how you doing? Good, I've been uh, working on a little ditty for you, man. Hello? Can you hear me? Hey, sorry. I can now, yeah, you're breaking up there. She's breaking up, she's breaking up. We have the technology <laughs> to build him better, stronger, faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the $6 million man. Remember when that, yeah. was a, when that was a lot of money? Yeah, I do. Yep. I said I've been working on a song for you. Do you want to hear it? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I like to. I like to. You said last week that where's the music? So I came up with some music for you. <laughs> Here we go. Watching growth stocks pass by, they are the latest thing. I'm just sitting in a Skype call Using the checklist to try to make some sense All the scroll stocks passing by The tales they tell of men I'm not waiting on and off to pay I'm just trusting on my friend Tony Coniston is that friend I know we'll get there in the end I'm just waiting on my friend <laughs> Oh, very good yeah, that's our that's our new a uh, new album, uh, TK and Cam coming out on uh, Spotify. That's excellent. <laughs> oh, I suppose we'll have to play Mick Jagger huge royalties now, will we? Won't we? Uh, who? I don't know. I just I just wrote that. I don't know what you're talking about. I just ah. just just made that up. Is this, is this, oh right, maybe you and I are in the parallel world like that guy on the Beatles movie. <laughs> yeah. Wakes up one day, no one's heard of Linda McCartney. Yeah. Yeah, this one, no one's, right. no one's heard of the Stones. How are you, mate? I'm good, good. That's good. Yeah, really good. Um, yeah. I just want to start off by giving a, a shout out to some of our subscribers who sent us some really nice emails. In our newsletter to subscribers uh, that went out last week, I said, give me some feedback. How's the show going? Is uh, the whole checklist analysis thing getting a bit boring yet? And they all went, no, no, it's fantastic. Keep it up. Do more. Go deeper. Do more. And then um, we got a lovely review on iTunes today from our mate Adrian, uh, who we travelled around a bit of Europe with. He hung out with us where? And he did Paris and uh, Corsica. He was in Ajaxio. I yeah. Think he left yep. the stuff for Ajaxio, maybe? Went back? I think he did, yeah. He's a, yeah, uh, no, he was good. He was lovely. He's a fund manager in Switzerland. Gave me a, right. gave me a, a, a genuine Swiss army knife which the security guards then at uh, the Colosseum in Rome took off me and wouldn't give oh, it back no. bastards yeah so so actually he was with us in uh, Rome as well no was and he? in Florence well no Florence he was with us in Florence was he really I remember that night we uh, we had dinner on his his last night in Florence right yeah 
Well, anyway, he's uh, just started listening to the show. Does, wrote us a nice review on iTunes. So shout out to Adrian. Lovely. But yeah, he's a fund manager in uh, Switzerland, right? Uh, yeah, running a pension fund from memory. Right. G'day, mate. All the yeah, way. Yeah, hi. Yeah. Thanks for the review. It was lovely. Yeah, it was very nice. It was. So, uh, what's new with you this week, Tony? Do you have a plan about what you want to talk about this week? Yeah, we, I think we promised in the past we'd talk about portfolio construction. So that's what I've prepared to do. But yeah, thanks to the listeners. There's lots of lots of ideas now for future podcasts too, including going down in some more detail as to why things are in the checklist and, and what do they mean in more detail. So we can do that in future future weeks. Yeah, okay. You've got some sirens yeah. going on out there. They, they've finally tracked you down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm, I've barricaded myself up here. <laughs> I'll never take me alive. <laughs> barricaded the doors. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm just what? tying all the bed sheets together and throwing them out the window. <laughs> uh, not like Jeffrey Epstein, though, I hope. Not that kind of uh, tying the bed sheets together. Yeah, no. no. Uh, um, so, well, listen, today I thought uh, in our second half where we normally do the analysis instead of doing an analysis we could just go back over the checklist and maybe uh drill down into why each bit's on there and what they mean or something for the subscribers yeah if you like sure um be useful for me too honestly because quite honestly a lot of the stuff you know i know that we talked about it when we first started six months ago but now i'm plugging numbers in and i honestly don't really uh, fully, like if somebody held me up against a wall with a gun and said, explain how this spreadsheet works or your brains will be over the wall, I'd go, well, just pull the trigger because honestly, <laughs> I, I, can, I know how to plug the numbers in, but don't ask me to explain it. So I'd, yeah, I'd be, I'd be fudging. Yeah, sure. We can do that. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. yeah good. What else is going and on? And we still have a whole heap of companies to analyze because it's been company reporting season. So there's a lot backed up on the spreadsheet now, which we haven't gone through. But we can do that over the following weeks. That's fine. Yeah. Mm. Look, I think it's worth uh, maybe just stepping back a bit based on some of the feedback that we got and, and, it, and it resonated with me personally is, okay, let's let's just go back. And um, now that we've spent six months like working the checklist, got a handle for how it works, maybe now it's time to better understand the componentry of it and why they what what they mean why they are what they are that kind of thing yeah no i agree that's a good idea i think it'd be useful somebody also suggested uh can't remember who i apologize but somebody suggested we do um live q a's at some point in the future like an online video live you know and also maybe we're like a webinar where we walk through uh doing an analysis how did you feel about that Look, I'm happy to do it, but just bear in mind we don't have a financial service license. So if someone asks a very specific question, we really have to be careful about how we answer it. Mm. But yeah, happy to talk about things in general and financial literacy. Yeah, no problems. Yeah, we can't we can't give advice, but you can explain what you do for yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. we'll give, give advice to myself. Yes. <laughs> uh... So you wanted to talk about, you wanted to jump into portfolio construction today? Yes, I did, yeah. Okay. And uh, I've got, let me give you a bit of a background on the whole sort of topic because it's often it's often a big part of what a fund manager will research and will say as part of their secret source and how they do things differently. And I've tried a lot of different things and I've, I've really just come back to basics over the last little while. 
um, and I've I've read read books on it, and generally the whole thing about allocating a portfolio comes down to what kind of risk tolerance you have, and I think probably the hardest thing to measure that I've tried to measure and that people have tried to measure is risk. How risky is something? And the generally accepted way of measuring it empirically is to look at the is the volatility of it. So, you know, bonds aren't all that volatile. They, they tend to go up and down by bits of a percentage in the course of months or, or quarters or even years, and, and at most maybe a few percentage points in a year. So they're not very volatile compared to stocks, which can you know go up up or down 10, 20% or more um, in a short period. And then within stocks, uh, you've got some which are highly, highly volatile because uh, they might be trading on a high PE, for example. And so you look at the growth stocks and overall they're going up, but they might be very volatile day to day and week to week. So they might take two steps forward, one step back type thing. Uh, compared, that, compared to, say, a, a big... Blue chip stock like a BHP or a, um, uh, a bank, uh, where they might take a lot more time to, to go up or down and they're less volatile. And so people have kind of settled on, or academics have kind of settled on this measure for, for risk, which is involves volatility. But you know, I scratch my head at that because I think they're two very different things. And I think it's one of the things that got people into trouble during the the GFC is a lot of banks have a, a measure that they use called VAR, V-A-R, which is, I think, stands for volatility at risk. So how much how much do they have at risk in a particular market and how volatile is that market? And therefore, they take that to be the, the risk in their portfolio. In other words, from day to day, if they're in a highly volatile market, their, their fund might go up and down a lot. If they're in a low, a low volatile area or a low volatile market, then their fund won't go up and down a lot. But as we know in the GFC, when, when the shit hits the fan, it, it spreads far and wide and everything is volatile. You know, everything goes down at the same time. So to say that one thing is less risky because it's less volatile, I think is a bit of a uh, logical fallacy. So the, the kind of theory... Yeah, sure. I, I just Googled it for you because that's that's you know pretty much my job is to fact check you. Uh, VAR value at risk. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. You're well. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so why, so that's why I get paid the big bucks, Tony. Yeah, highly paid Google monkey. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but well, and I need it too because I I don't have all these things at my fingertips, all the facts. Uh, but the point I was going to make is that um, along the way, uh, a guy an academic uh, called Markov, and you can look him up as well if you like, M-A-R-K-O-V, came up with a, a thing called the efficient market curve and basically was, was putting uh, on the x-axis volatility or risk and on the y-axis return and was trying to find the most efficient curve he could put on that, on that graph for a given portfolio and would then add things and delete them from the portfolio until he maximised the, I guess, the line where growth meets risk and where too much growth is too risky or too little growth is uh, has low risk and therefore isn't growing enough. And so that's often called the efficient market frontier. Hopefully I've got those facts right. So there's a whole science behind constructing a portfolio where you're measuring the risk in it and but also trading off the growth in it. 
and, and that kind of spurns the whole uh, the whole thing that goes on with funds where they'll say, you know, we're a growth fund or an income fund or we're a um, low growth fund. And they're talking about essentially the volatility in the fund and, and how much they put towards high, high, um, highly volatile and therefore what they say is highly risky areas of the market versus uh, lower risk areas of the market. So a low growth fund will probably have a lot of money in currencies, uh, gold, um, probably property and those kinds of things. And a high growth fund will have almost a complete allocation towards equity, equities and particularly probably in the growth sector of things. And, and that's, that's not a bad way of branding yourself for people. But again, I just caution against using the sort of the, the, the measure of risk which equates to volatility as any sort of way of saying, you know, this, this growth, this, this fund is low risk. Because, you know, in the GFC, what we saw was that everything was uh, dropping and therefore nothing was low risk. Everything had a risk associated with it. Eventually, bonds uh, took off. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to have your money in bonds before they took off, then you did well. But that was probably about the only sector that didn't. Um, and, and bonds crashed during the GFC with everything else. They just rebounded quickly afterwards as, a, as people tried to put their money into safe havens. So, so my point is, um, I've been down the, the rabbit hole of trying to do this academically. And putting a portfolio together uh, using some kind of measure of risk, I don't find is very very achievable or, or very easy to do or has any sort of veracity in, in an investing. Okay, I think once on. you decide... Hold yep. on, I, I, need to, I need to stop you here because I'm, I'm, you lost me about 15 minutes ago. So it, it isn't... In terms of risk, my thinking about the checklist is actually the entire point of the checklist is to reduce risk as much as possible. To find uh, uh, good good quality companies that you can buy at a good value, thereby minimising risk. So why are we yeah, talking, well, why are we talking about risk? Okay, so what you're saying about the checklist is true, but what, what I'm saying is that at arriving at a way to construct a portfolio, the traditional way is to try and find a the measure of risk that you are comfortable with, and then find the highest growth you can achieve with those assets. Right, and so what? What a traditional fund manager might do is they might say, "Well, we've got some mining stocks in there, which are traditionally volatile because they're based on commodity cycles. So we might put some of those in the portfolio, but then we'll put some blue chips in there as well, like some BHPs or that's a mining stock, but some uh, banks in there to offset that kind of risk." So they they approach portfolio construction from a risk point of view, whereas I approach it from a an investment point of view. I'm trying to maximise my return. Um, I guess while, while taking the, the lowest amount of risk, you're right, in terms of using a checklist, I'm trying to maximise my return. Uh, and over time, I know it's going to be volatile, so I'm not as worried about that volatility because I'm going to stay invested for a long time. Right. So then, so then once having, having put aside the academia on, on portfolio construction, it then comes down to things, some very basic questions like... Uh, how many stocks do you want to hold? Are you going to hold some cash and reserve like Roger Montgomery was talking about when we interviewed him? Are you going to be 100% invested? And then in, in what what companies? We can tick the last one off because we're using our checklist to define which companies and, and they're ones that we think have quality and they're offering um, attractive prices. And so therefore, longer term, we expect to do better than the market and they have. Right. In terms of how much cash, 
I generally always stay fully invested in the market because if it's the best investment, then why would you hold back? Anything else is, in my opinion, is kind of crystal ball gazing. So I accept what Roger says and and I respect what Roger says. He, he His experience tells him that we could be heading for a recession and that stocks might be cheaper in the future. Therefore, he should hold some more cash in reserve to be able to buy things cheaply. I don't take that point of view necessarily. I, I tend to stay fully invested and then manage my way through the cycles using things like the three-point trend line to say it's time to sell or it's time to buy uh, the particular stocks that meet our, our checklist. So so that's the cash holding side of things. And then Sorry, lastly, it's... Just just before you move on, is, is there a, a risk inherent in your approach there versus, say, Roger's approach? Yeah, quite possibly. I would expect that that my returns would be better but more volatile and potentially Roger's returns might even be lower because he's got a, a greater weighting to cash, uh, particularly at the moment when cash is, is earning a very small return um, if you put it into a term deposit or and I, I guess you'd have to put it into a Nat Call account if you're going to want to get access to it quickly um, or a bond or something like that. So. I would expect to have higher returns, but to be a bit more volatile. And I expect Roger to have lower lower returns and to be um, a little less volatile. Right. Okay. Again, that's the kind of risk reward trade off. So he's, but, he's managing risk by holding cash. But in terms of volatility, I mean, you, you said before that you're not really worried about it because you're in it for the long haul. So and we've 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 touched on this you know, over the course of the series when. There have been market downturns. You know, you you will sell and wait for the market to settle before you buy back in. But at the, on the other hand, like short term volatility, you're not really worried too much about because you've analysed the company. You've, unless there's some new news that comes out about the company's prospects, their performance, you, you've convinced yourself that the company's business is doing well. Uh, it's being run well, consistently well. And you bought it at a reasonable price according to that value, so you just tend to hold and stick it out. So the volatility, how my understanding is that it's not really a massive factor for you, unless it's a major, unless the market collapses, then you pay attention. But otherwise, you don't really uh, pay much attention to it. Am I wrong? No, you're correct. Absolutely. Okay. But see, I'm I'm different to say a particular like a, a fund manager who's trying to entice customers to invest in their fund. Yeah, but we don't right? we don't care about them. We only care about you. You're the you're the guru. No. What, what, what do we no, I know. That's well. Well, I, we don't. Why are we having this conversation? <laughs> I, I guess what I'm those, those losers. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is to is I guess paint a picture of the history of portfolio construction. Okay. Um, Sorry. But but oh, to say want, that these are the reasons the, why I don't do it. You're one of these guys who when you're telling a story likes to go back to the dawn of time and you know, tell the slow history behind it. God, I hate those people. Oh, they're the worst. A uh, uh, bit of an in-joke there, I should explain. So, uh, you know, I, I record a lot of history podcasts uh, over on the podcastnetwork.com and uh, Tony always makes a lot of fun out of me because quite often before I start a, a show about a particular period or a particular person, I like to go right, right back to explain a lot of the background behind the country or the event. Uh, you know, my series on the Syrian Civil War, we started back at the death of Muhammad to explain the Sunni-Shia split uh, 
and my series on the Renaissance, instead of starting in the 1300s, as you would expect, we started sort of around 300, uh, you know, the, the Emperor Diocletian, and, and, and we sort of took it through to the fall of uh, Rome uh, and the Dark Ages, because I thought that would make more sense when you got to the Renaissance to understand a bit of the background about how Western Europe ended up there in the first place. But anyway, so that's in joke. Please forgive us. Uh, yeah, well, that's right. And, and look, uh, just you just reminded me. If people want to have a good history of risk, they should read a book. I think it's called against. It's either called against the odds or against the gods. And I'll try and quickly <laughs> Google it. Against the odds um, was a great film that uh, Phil Collins did the soundtrack for about 1982. <laughs> Send a recall. No, that's that's not it. Uh, it's. I'm just looking it up. And it's a book about risks. I don't get the movie when I Google it. <laughs> Against the Gods, the remarkable story of risk. How can I just let you walk away? Just let you was... leave without a trace. There are two songs in one episode, I feel. <laughs> when I stand here taking every breath with you. You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, where were you? Keep going. Don't let me don't let me throw take, you off. Take a look your, at me your, now. Your riveting conversation about fund managers. Yeah, please. <laughs> the book's called Against the Gods: Remarkable Story of Risk by Peter L. Bernstein in 1998. So I won't say anything more on the history of risk. People can go and read it. Okay. It does go back a long way. Right. <laughs> right. Bernstein. Okay. Yep. So. Last thing I want to say about it, and it's not about risk. Well, it kind of is. It's how many stocks do you want to have in a portfolio? And in our, our portfolio that we set up as a mock portfolio on the, on the web, we put 20 stocks in. And mm-hmm. most people would say that's about the right number, somewhere between 15 and 30. Mm-hmm. And I kind of settled on that myself too. And the Why reason... Why is that? Oh, okay. You get into that. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, the earth cooled and the dinosaurs hey, came hey, out. Hey, no one likes a smart ass. I should know. <laughs> People tell me all the time, we don't like you. You're a smart ass. <laughs> a musical smart ass. <laughs> well, not that musical. Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, it resonated with me because uh, going back to. Uh, one of my jobs, which was to uh, run the data analytics department at Coles Meyer, where I had the research people reporting into me, uh, we did a lot of research and I would talk to the researchers about sample size. And they would say that 5% of a market, or, or when I say market, I mean people, population, or the sector you're trying to, to, to reach for research, would give you a very good predictive power. And the, I looked into it. And something like, I think it was, uh, if you went as high as, uh, I think 15% gave you a, like a 92% correlation with the overall sample. And so if we're talking about the ASX 200 uh, stocks, then 15 stocks is going to get you, you know, a high correlation with, uh, with the market. It's a good sample size for the market. Um, anything, but we're, we're trying anything to beat more, the market though, right? We're trying that's to right, yes. Yeah, so, that. That's right. So my point is you don't want to go too much more than 15, maybe 20, because then you're going to start correlating the market rather than trying to beat it. So the more, the more stocks you hold, the more you hug the index. The least, the least stocks you hold, you, you take on the risk of being wrong in one or two instances and that can wipe you out. So you kind of 
strike a happy medium around uh, 15, 20 stocks. We decided so that's, how many how many stocks on the ASX? Like 3,000, did we say? Oh, it's two. Yeah, a bit over 2,000. Two, two, two I think it is. Okay. Yeah, so, so if, yeah, you, you need to hold 200 to, to start to correlate with the ASX. But, but most of the ASX by market cap is in the top 200. So we're going to keep below around 20 or below and, and try not to correlate with that too strongly. So we're about we're sitting at about one percent of the stocks on the market. We're trying to we're trying to get the the, the best one percent. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the other thing too is we're we're trying to beat the index by holding the good ones, not the bad ones. And by so and by too. the good ones and the best ones, just to clarify for first time listeners, we're not talking about the highest performing in terms of their recent share price uh, history. We're talking about the best performing businesses in terms of. Their track record with their their income and their profitability, the solidity of their management, those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep, the whole checklist. We're trying to buy good companies, and that's that's an important point to make. I, I talk about stocks, but I'm talking about shares of companies. We are buying shares in companies, so we want to make sure that they're good. So we want to buy good companies that are performing well, uh, run well, uh, and also the, the the subset of those that we can buy at a reasonable price. Correct. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, so we for, don't have a big. We for, don't have a big universe. Listeners, I just want to explain that. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. So we don't have a big universe to play in anyway. There's, there's only going to ever be, you know, maybe 30, 40 stocks that meet our checklist uh, anyway. And you, you could make a case to say buy them all. Um, one of the other reasons why I don't like having a lot of stocks is because it becomes administratively burdensome as well. Um, you've got to you know record. Uh, all your banking details with these companies on the on the share registries. Uh, you've got to pr- process the dividends when they come in. Um, you, you want to track their performance. Um, I use a spreadsheet to do that. So having a lot of lot of stocks can be administratively burdensome. And also too, uh, you want to be able to check in on these companies from time to time. So having to cycle through fifty or sixty stocks is also uh, more time consuming than sticking to twenty twenty or so. So that's and that's. Those- that's Those golf balls aren't going to hit themselves. Well, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the golf ball test. Am I <laughs> am I having more fun on the golf course or than I am sitting here trying to put 50 trying to register my banking details with 50 companies. <laughs> you could you know, you uh, could that, you that can probably fails the golf course test. You could probably hire someone to do that for you, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Well, my stockbroker does a lot of that for me too. Okay. But uh, yeah. You still got to check right. it. So that's, that's how many stocks I hold. Um, I, I hold very little cash. Uh, so that's pretty much the construction of the portfolio. The last question to answer is, how, how do you uh, weight each particular share in the portfolio? And again, this is another one that I've tinkered with over time. Um, I, think, I think what we've done with our mock portfolio is probably the, the best or as good as any other one. And that's to take an equal weighting of the shares that we've identified as passing our checklist. I have tried in the past, like uh, investing more in those that score higher versus those that score lower, and I've also weighted it again with their market cap. So I'm buying more of larger companies than I am of, of small cap companies. But I've done a bit of regression testing on that, and it doesn't really matter. It's, it's almost like uh, our checklist is almost like a like a quantum threshold in physics. Once you get over that threshold, you're into a new state almost, and I haven't been able to find um, any sort of effective KPI to 
pick amongst those that meet our, our checklist as to which one you should invest more in and which one you should invest less in. So I tend to just uh, tend to buy them equally now. Having said that, my portfolio has been going for a long time. So it does include stocks which are you know quite big compared to other ones which I'm just introducing now. But if I was starting out from scratch again, I'd buy equally as we have in the mock portfolio. And then do what, what fund managers call tender garden. So you, you let the let the, the trees bloom and you weed the weeds and uh, let the good ones run and get rid of the ones that, that uh, have their have breached their three-point cell uh, test. And so that's how you manage it going forward. Just keep an eye on them. And, and you, like how much time in any given week do you spend tending your garden? Oh, not long. Like I said, the last probably probably three or four weeks, I've, I've spent a lot of time on it because it's company reporting season. So I've been, you know, buying buying new stocks and and uh, haven't sold a whole lot. I did have some cash um, ready to deploy. For, I don't know. If, I think I told you earlier on that we had a house in Toronto that we sold and it settled, and I've just been putting that cash back into the market slowly over the last twelve months. So. I've, I've just put the last of that to work in this in this last of the while during the company reporting season. Mm-hmm. So from here on in, I'll simply be trading. I'll be saying uh, I'm doing nothing until something looks like I need to sell it, and then I'll take that cash and put it back into the ones that meet our checklist score. And I'll do that. I'll I'll, I'll generally have all those stocks that are on the watch list uh, or in the, in the portfolio ranked by their QAV score, and I'll just go down the list buying. Um, a parcel of shares in each. So don't don't sort of focus on any in particular, but I do start with the ones that score best, but I will go right down the list and buy. So for example, with our portfolio, we've got 20 stocks in the uh, owned category. We've, we've added a number of others to the watch list where you said you've done the analysis uh, privately that they've, uh, that they've got a positive QAV score, but we don't have... Uh, any funds left, any cash left in our portfolio to buy them, so we've just thrown them in the watch list. If um, if if we were managing this uh, like a real portfolio, then would we just wait for one of the ones that we own to start to go backwards, sell it, and then buy one of the ones in the watch list, or buy a little bit of all of the ones in the watch list that have a good QAV score? Um, what's the process? So almost, so yeah, I would, I would wait for one to go bad and then sell it, uh, and and that that could be bad because they've the sentiment's gone out of the stock, or there's been some new new news, or the latest figures haven't been great and well received, so they're out. But no, what I do is I would take the watch list and the portfolio together and rate them by the QAV score, and then buy down that list. Right. So that might mean that might mean something on the what on the watch list goes in, or it might mean I rebuy or buy more of something on the in the current portfolio. Right. And and um, would you take the money that you got from the sale of the stock that had gone bad and invest all of it into the number, the one with the highest QAV list, or would you spread it equally amongst several stocks at that juncture? Yeah, I'd, I'd take all the proceeds from the sale and generally spread it equally amongst the, the, the stock... Where it made sense, I mean, if, if we're selling one stock and that's and we have 20 stocks in the portfolio, that's 5%. So you might just put it, say, amongst the top five on the right. list. Right. 1% yeah. into each, yeah. yeah. You don't want to put $100 into each 
yeah. going down the list. Yeah. 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 But if, for example, you sold maybe three or four stocks, then yeah, you might go down the whole list yeah. and, and buy a bit of each. Yeah. Okay. And before we move on, I just flag this. We can talk about it now or later. I already had in my notes to talk to you about regression testing and how you actually do that. You've mentioned it a few times in passing over the course of the show, and I've never really had a good understanding about how you go about doing that beyond the, the high-level concept of, I know what regression testing is. Uh, is this a good time to talk about that, or do you want to flag it for later? No, that's a good time. That's fine, yeah. Uh, and so regression testing is basically going back and rerunning history, but focusing on one or two different variables and, and looking how, say, a portfolio of shares may have gone if you did something differently. Uh, so can you run through a scenario a, that you, when yeah, you've sure. done that, what, what, what it is yeah, that you're looking at? Interestingly enough, I've, I've done a bit of regression testing in the last week because uh, I, I think I've mentioned in the past that the checklist isn't set in concrete. You yeah. know, you know I, I expect it to change and evolve uh, along with the markets and what's happening. And one of the things I looked at was uh, whether whether a buy and hold portfolio would have been better than using the three-point trend line to sell those that were on their on their skids and uh, and then redeploy that into other ones. And I, I hasten to add, I'm, I'm not doing any sort of rigorous statistical analysis here in mm. terms of finding correlations and coefficients and all that kind of thing. All I'm doing when I say regression testing is I went back uh, I think I went back four years to uh, some old checklist spreadsheets. And, and one of the benefits of using the checklist and, and keeping it on a spreadsheet is you can go back to your records and have a look. And I looked at the all the stocks that would have been buys four, four years ago, according to the checklist, and put them in with equal weighting and then saw where they were now. And uh, I forget the, uh, I think over the four years from memory, that portfolio returned, I think, something like 68%. Uh, which is about in line with the sort of 19.5% a year. Mm-hmm. And that didn't include dividends. And mm-hmm. it didn't also include the costs of uh, buying and selling. So every time we buy and sell, we pay a little bit to the stockbroker mm-hmm. and we may incur some capital gains tax as well. Mm-hmm. So, so buying and holding does have a, an intrinsic advantage in that uh, you're not paying capital gains tax because you're always holding. And you're not paying stockbrokers along the way. So it kind of said to me that, yeah, the buy and hold... Uh, method works and should be considered but I kind of rejected it based on the fact that the reason why I use the three-point sell is experience in the GFC which taught me that when things are going down you need to get out and regroup and wait for the bottom and then buy in again when sentiment returns so the three-point sell may incur some extra costs along the way but that's kind of insurance against uh, getting you know a, a pretty terrible return if you if you held on to something during the GFC. And I know someone could turn around and say, well, but if you held it for long enough, you would have got that money back. Uh, and that's true. But I know during that time of the GFC, by selling out at the sort of first maybe 20% downturn, uh, I did better by re- like reinvesting that cash in about 18 months later than if I had have held on and, and waited for it to return to its, uh, its pre-GFC levels. So yeah, that's what I mean by regression testing. It's have a thought. Have a, I, I love to challenge the checklist, and I'm, I'd invite people to to email us and, and challenge parts of the checklist, and you know, say that's bullshit or whatever, because we can go back and 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 test. 
a particular variable and, and find out whether it would have the performance of the portfolio would have been better if we'd done things differently. Somebody um, sent us an email a few weeks ago with a list of investors that they said um, were doing better than Warren Buffett. <clears throat> and I know you've had a look at some of them. They meant nothing to me, these names, of course, and I don't have the time to go and read up on all of them but because I'm too busy writing great songs that have never been heard before in history. Um, uh, but uh, one of them you mentioned to me in an email today that you knew of, uh, Greenblatt, and that he had a list in a book. Do you want to mention that? Yeah, so Alan Kohler's email this weekend was really good. I, I recommend it to people. He puts out a, a weekly email, and at the end of it, he has a list of things which have caught his eye. And one of those was a, a checklist. Um, I'd have to look it up, but... Uh, Someone put out a, like a, a list of all their checklists that they they thought uh, were worth looking at, and the three that Alan Kohler put into his email, one was from Charlie Munger, and the list of things that he looked at, and one was from this guy Greenblatt, and I forget the third. Uh, the Greenblatt one struck a chord with me though because I had read his book, and it's called the the little book that beats the market, and he he has a checklist much like mine, although it focuses on mainly on uh, return on capital invested, uh, which is, I guess, a manipulation of what we look at when we look at return on equity, for example. So he adds working cash and, and um, I think, assets from memory together and then looks at the return, like the EBIT the company's making over that, and then uh, he, he puts together a checklist and ranks it. There's a few other things in there. I'm, I'm kind of selling him short a bit. And he's saying that th that, that has beaten the market substantially um, over time. I have I sent it along to, to to let our subscribers know that there are other checklists out there and encourage them to, to broaden their reading uh, with these kind of kinds of books and, and to get them as use them as thought starters almost. Mm. Uh, I remember when I when I read that book it, it didn't sort of I can't remember why, but I think from memory when I started to look look into it a bit deeper, uh, it the numbers I were getting weren't quite as good as what I was getting through my checklist. Um, that that could have just been the time I did that. So I'll, I'll probably go back and have a look at it again. Uh, and I know that uh, the article, I think Wikipedia says that, that Greenblatt set up a hedge fund back in the 70s or 80s and it returned 30% a year and, until I think it folded. But I, I don't, doesn't, Wikipedia doesn't say that he used that particular checklist to get that 30% return. So I know he did put a fund together based on that checklist and it's done well, but I'm not sure what the annual returns are for, for that checklist. So yeah, so um, put that out to our subscribers, Ken. It was a good link to have a look at. And so wait, uh, Alan Kohler didn't mention you in your checklist? No. <laughs> no, he didn't. I know. Did you uh, Did you send him an email? Say, hey. I haven't, no. What, what, what the hell, dude? No. no, I'm eternally grateful for him coming on our show, so no. I'll have my people um, call his people. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess one of the, one of the good things that you, you can do uh, is if you have another checklist that you come across, like Greenblatt's, I assume you can take all of his metrics uh, and, and take all of the stocks that you invested in four years ago and then dig up the data somehow. That sounds painful, but go back and dig up their annual data over that period of time, throw it into his checklist and compare the results to yours, right? You can run a little experiment? Absolutely, yeah. 
that's that's exactly what you could do. What I'd probably do uh, to, to try and even things out even a bit better is to run some filters in Stock Doctor to pull out the metrics that he uses and put together a trial portfolio and let it run forward against against mine. Oh, okay, right. So then it's, it's definitely like for like, yeah. Right. And just do it on paper for maybe 12 months and see how it goes. Right. Okay. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, listen, you know, I, one of the things that um, I, I think is uh, highly commendable about your attitude and your whole approach is your position that, hey, look, this is, um, this is an ongoing project. It's not set in concrete, as you said. You're, you're still learning despite your success because uh, uh, you have the humility of Jesus. Uh, it's, why I, it's why I call you Jesus and say a little prayer to you every night. <laughs> until, until, oh until God. have you been smoking something? Until <laughs> you get half a bottle of scotch and you and a couple of bottles of wine, then I've noticed, yeah, the humility tends to drop off a little bit. But most of the time, when you're sober, you're very, very humble. <laughs> Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> it's intended. Actually, my wife, intended. my wife tells me the similar sorts of things after I've drunk a few bottles, a bottle of red wines as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some of some of the uh, nice filters come off, as does with a lot of people. Not that you, yeah, it's not that you become you're not a you're not a mean drug, but you're kind of like you call bullshit on people a lot more. I notice when you've had a few right. drinks, you t- right. you tend yeah. to let let the rest of us mere mortals get away with our bullshit when you're sober. But when you've had a few drinks, you're like, eh, hold on, I've gotten picking, picking, picking. <laughs> <laughs> I got a gotten picking. I can't even talk. <laughs> yes. Yeah, good old Dutch courage. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's that. It's just uh, you don't let people get away with as much when you've had a few drinks in you. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Oh, good. I, I remember sitting. I, I remember sitting on some rooftops in uh, Florence, and uh, what was the other rooftop that we had? Was it uh, Rome? No, Athens. Uh, Athens and Florence. No, I wasn't in had, Athens. I didn't go to Athens. Oh. Well, we had a great rooftop in Athens, mate. You missed that. A view of the Acropolis from our hotel uh, rooftop. So it was uh, Florence. must have been in Florence then where you were yeah. holding court. Well, actually, I was holding court, but uh, you were weighing in. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Well, it's, it's fun from both ways. fun having the red wine too as well as entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Billy. Oh, shit, I just spilled drink all over my keyboard. You're drinking. It's it's like two forty in the afternoon. It's it's mate, cherba mate, from Argentina that one of my listeners sent me. Well, he sent me the gourd, not the uh, mate. The mate is from a local place. You know about cherba mate? I do not know. Ah oh, man, it's this drink that's big in Argentina and Uruguay. I think it's uh, it's like tea. It's leaves, but it's. It's more like it's a special kind of plant that only grows there, and it's uh, very dirty and earthy. It tastes like you like basically getting chopped grass and twigs, putting in your cup, putting some hot water in it, and drinking it through a special straw, a metal straw with little holes in the bottom called a bombilla, and you drink it in a gourd, uh, like a, a, a like a I don't know like a gourd like a fossilized small pumpkin anyway it's a whole thing favorite drink of uh che guevara 
Just by the way, and Pope Francis, you'll see lots of you'll see lots of photos of Pope Francis. I know you spend a lot of time looking up photos of Pope Francis in your spare time, and you'll notice in a lot of those he's holding a funny little gourd with a little metal straw that he's sipping out of. That is because he's from Argentina, and that is uh, Cherba Mate. Okay, good. Uh, probably good for our listeners. I haven't been drinking some red wine, otherwise I'd let fly on that. But. Good. That's right. <laughs> yes, you would. Yes, you would. Yeah. No, it um, sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, listen, uh, before we um, get too far off topic, there was a couple of other points I wanted to make about the portfolio. Um, so I'll get back to that. The got two more things in my notes here. One is that uh, later on, as we'll see as we run our mock portfolio, we'll find that uh, some of the stocks will run and keep running even though when more results come out, they may not score uh, above 0.1 on the checklist anymore. I'll still hold those and wait for them to have a downturn in their sentiment before I sell them, Uh, which is kind of like the best place to be. That's the sweet spot for our investments because they've gone from, they've always been quality, but they've gone from being value now to being um, either fairly priced or even highly priced. So they've, they've got lots of sentiment behind them. Um, so there's no real need to, to sell those, even though they don't score on the checklist. I know some some fund managers will say things like, I have an intrinsic value for a stock, and once it reaches that value, I sell it. But I don't. I'll let the good ones run, even when they're scoring badly on the checklist. Right. So I should add that in as well. Because, and, that's, because the score on the checklist isn't necessarily a measure of the performance of the company. Is no, that that's why? a good way of putting it. The, the score on the checklist is basically a buy signal for us. Yes. And uh, so it doesn't it doesn't have a sell signal part of it. It's just a buy signal for us. So the the stock, as long as it's keep it keeps running and, and you know is is still a good quality stock, um, I'm happy to let it stay in the portfolio. Yeah, the sell signal is just the sentiment, the three point trend line. That's right. Yeah. And the last point I had is uh, this is a bit of a tangent. And it comes back, I guess, to what we said before about Greenblatt. Is is get? I'd like people to get used to working with money um, as part of the, one of the outcomes of this portfolio of, of this podcast. So when you become financially literate and you're not just sort of doing things without thinking, uh, run run your own spreadsheets even on paper for a while. Get used to making decisions that involve large amounts of money for you, uh, so that you don't sort of hesitate to do things because you're a bit a bit risk averse of, of putting too much money into something or or if it goes wrong it's going to have a big effect on your life. Um, get used to get used to money as being I guess counters or units. Um, and, and you can do that by, you know, like I said, running portfolios on paper or starting off small, but get used to it. Um, read widely, get get other people's input, get their portfolios, um, look at those Pretend that you're them and invest in those kinds of portfolios and see how they turn out, but but get used to to doing it either either for real or or just get into the swing of, of doing it because it it can be quite confronting if you if you come at all this cold and suddenly you've got you know your superannuation fund or your life savings or even your spare cash in it uh, you can sometimes sometimes it makes you more risk averse than you should be is what I'm trying to say so really immerse yourself in this stuff even. 
like I remember, I think one of the one of the things that I used to do, which I think helped, was just go along to a racetrack and and put some you know put some money into uh, into punting, and that leads you to think about how you rate horses, how you how you want to spend your money. Um, it gets gets you used to thinking on how to value things, how to look at the odds. Gets you used to thinking about the structure of what you're doing. Should you be betting on a on a tote, or should you be going to a bookie? Who gives the best odds? All those kinds of things. Even though you know it's it's a it's a frivolous hobby, it still gets you used to dealing in money and thinking um, in terms of investment. And it's quite surprising how you can take some lessons learnt um, in other areas like like the racetrack or even the casino and come back and apply them to investing. And and one of the other books I wanted to mention as well uh, kind of has a, a similar sort of story to it. Um, just trying to find what it's called now. But it's about a guy called. Um, let me try and find it. Hang on, sorry. The producers of this show would just like to point out once again that don't take anything we say on this as a financial advice, particularly when Tony <laughs> says, "Why don't you just go down to the Gun track the at the weekend and uh, <laughs> throw some money at the horses?" <laughs> Listen, that's not financial advice. <laughs> it's not. That's right. But yeah, what what it does teach you though is you don't want to lose the money really nearly. You want to start to research it and and come up with a strategy. And you also get used to things like, uh, you know, the, the odds-on horse may, may lose. And that's, that's got parallels in what's going on with growth stocks at the moment, I think, anyway. And if you see a guy down there with a black leather jacket, oily hair mm-hmm. called uh, Jimmy, Jimmy the Rat, and, you know, borrow 10 grand from him and, uh, you know, pay the VIG, whatever it is, throw that on the horses, see what happens, see your experience with Jimmy. You can put that into... You know, the, the experience of having a couple of broken legs, uh, it's all good. It's all good, uh, you know, education. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise that either. We're not giving financial advice. Okay, so the book I, I, I really like is called Fortune's Formula. It's by William Poundstone. And it, it basically uh, is, a, is a bit of a thumbnails profile of the life of a guy called Claude Shannon. Now, Claude Shannon was an engineer at Bell Labs back in the early part of the 20th century. And he pioneered uh, work with trying to pull the noise out of a signal. And what I mean by that is uh, whenever we talk like we are now over Skype or on a telephone or send some kind of signal, it's always going to have a certain amount of um, data that's lost in in the transmission. And Sharp was able to mathematically work out how to uh, monitor that and how to um, therefore counteract that or take it into account um, Sharp in transmissions. Shannon? Oh, Shannon, sorry. They call him Sharp. I'm sorry. I meant Shannon, Claude Shannon. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and that, was, that work was then followed on by a guy called Thorpe, uh, and he wrote a book called Beat the, Beat the Market, and I think it was another one called Beat the Dealer, but he, he basically pioneered blackjack playing because he took, he took the, um, the idea from Shannon that in certain circumstances, uh, the, the hands that you're being dealt in blackjack are overwhelmingly in your favour and you should therefore bet big. Uh, and that's, he sort of extrapolated the work of Shannon to get to that. And then he put together his own investment fund and, and took that blackjack strategy to the market and made, made a lot of money. And then there was a third person called Kelly, and Kelly came up with a kind of summary of both those two people, which he called Edge Over Odds. 
And so he said, when you have an edge and you know what the odds are of or the return you expect from that, then that should be your investment, your edge over your odds. What does he and, mean? What does he mean by edge? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. It's I think a good example of it is if you think about a, a weighted coin in a coin toss, say say someone handed you a coin and it wasn't equally weighted, so it wasn't a fifty fifty split if you tossed it in the air and got heads or tails, but you, you worked out over time that say it's sixty percent favoured heads. So your edge is 10%. It's 60% minus 50%. And your return or, or your odds is if you get it right, you get um, even money. So you get 100% of your, your money back. So he, he would say in terms of allocating capital, your edge is 10% and the odds are 100%. So you put one-tenth of your capital into each, each coin toss. Uh, so that means you're not wiped out if you have a string of losses. But over time, you have more strings of, of wins uh, and, and maximizing how much you put in for each bet um, will give you the best the best uh, investment strategy to maximize your returns over time. So if you just went the same amount each time uh, and it wasn't ten percent, maybe maybe it was one percent, then you wouldn't you'd still make money because you've got a, um, a weighted coin, but you wouldn't make as much money as if you went ten percent each time. And so there's the mathematics to back that up. Um, the, the, I, I raise all this as kind of the way that my mind works, I guess, in trying to, trying to apply these things. So it, it first came to my attention in the casino when I started to, uh, like I go to a casino socially, sit down and play blackjack with someone, lose my money and go, shit, this is no good. I better read up about it. So I go back and read about uh, the blackjack strategy that Thorpe came up with. And next time you go, you can sort of hold your own. But casinos have long ago latched on to Thorpe and they now, that's why if you go to a casino and, and look at a blackjack table, they, they deal from something like eight decks or 16 decks. So you can't work out what the odds of the next card are easily because they're all, they're all mixed in with multiple decks and they, they shuffle all those decks together quite frequently as well. So it's very hard to do what Thorpe said. But anyway, um, the, the point of all this is, is not so much to say that... Um, you should do any of these things, but but to read widely and, and get your mind thinking about these things and then take it to the next step and say, can I apply that to my investment strategy? And then the next step is if you think you can find a way, put put together a dummy portfolio based on that or do some regression testing if you have lots of data to test with and see if it works. And if it does, amend the checklist. Or I could just get you to tell me what to do and not have to read all these books. Yeah, you could, but I think you actually like that book and, and the history of these guys. It's really fascinating. No, I'm kidding. I've already made a note to buy them. <laughs> but yeah, and it's it's like anything. You like you can't you can't be a good golfer if you go out there once a month and hit a few balls. You've got to kind of immerse yourself a bit into it and practice. And it's it's a bit hard to practice with money. So there are. I mean, if you think about it a lot and read widely and then try and do things on paper. That's the kind of practice you can have it as an investor. And I think it's important. All righty. Very good. Well, uh, we've been talking a long time. It might be time to get into the premium uh, episodes, uh, premium questions. So we've been nearly going an hour, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we could uh, maybe answer some of the questions uh, that we, some of our premium subscribers sent us this week. Sure. Um, Paul Cody sent us uh, some questions. Uh, 
don't know if you want to take these one at a time. Let me know if you don't, and I'll edit this out. But the process of buying shares, he says, I guess Tony goes through a stockbroker, but for the first time as amongst us, what are limit and market orders? Yeah, sure. So I generally buy at market. Uh, you can put a limit in, so you can say to a, to a stockbroker, I want to buy shares in Maya, and I want to buy them at 70 cents or 60 cents. And you may or may not get that, that order filled. So that's an at-limit order, uh, whereas a market order says, I'll, I'll go to my broker and say, I want to buy 1,000 Maya shares at market, and whatever the, the price is at the time, he'll buy them. So if that's the difference a, between market and limit. Sorry, if you put in a limit order, say 60 cents, and he can't get them for 60 cents, does he sit on that for six months until he can get them at 60%, or is it, is it time sensitive? Uh, he'll generally sit on them, but and which is why you've got to be careful, because it... You know, if if my if the Maya share price suddenly tanks, yeah, and on the way down it goes through sixty, he'll buy them. Right. So, uh, I'm not sure of what the rules are. It might differ between brokers, but but generally you have to cancel the order. You have to tell them to take it out. Right. Because if you think about it, um, the way the broker sees it on his screen is there's a there's like a whole list of buy orders and a whole list of sell orders, and they're basically what they call bids and sells. And so all the bids are there saying, you know, Joe Blow wants to buy a thousand my shares at sixty cents, and that might be tenth in the queue because someone else is happy to buy a thousand my shares at what they're trading at now, like seventy cents or whatever. Um, so the broker can see all those orders, and they'll often come back to you if you put a bid order in and say, look, you're way out of the market. You want to change it. Uh, so it's you should if you're putting in a, a, an order at bid, I'd say keep in contact contact with your stockbroker daily and, and just review it. I, I, do you have to go through a stockbroker? Is there any way uh, of buying directly now or do you still have to go through a broker? You, you do have to go through a broker. That's the monopoly of the stock exchange. Uh, but you can do it online very cheaply with Comsec or E-Trade or, or similar sorts of um, offerings. I think most banks and probably even some of the building societies have their own online trading platform now. Is there any... Oh, so you have a stockbroker. Why don't you do it directly? You're such a hands-on guy. Isn't it cheaper yeah. to do it directly? Uh, not these days. So in the past, it was much cheaper, but the, the commissions for stockbrokers has dropped dramatically. Hmm. It's still much higher than an online broker. So it's partly convenience. So um, I like the ability to, to do the focus on the analysis and then to shoot an email off to the broker saying, buy a 1,000 my shares today, please, at market, and let them worry about um, exercising the order. If you're doing it online yourself through Comsec or E-Trade, and I, I have done it in the past through E-Trade, I had an E-Trade account probably your 15, 20 years ago, uh, you're the stockbroker. So you've got to look at that list of bids and, and sells and work out what price you want. You've got to put the order in. It may or may not be matched. You've got to make sure if it's not matched, it doesn't get matched uh, because something's gone wrong and the price is dropping quickly. You're, you're managing that risk. Uh, so it's... I mean, generally it works out okay because most of the markets are liquid, but there have been cases where uh, people have put some ridiculous orders in just trying to, to catch the unawares. So it'll be a thinly traded stock and someone might put a, um, a buy price in much lower than what the market is and suddenly the market goes quiet on that stock and someone who's putting an order in at market themselves will have that order matched by something which is maybe you know, half the price they would get if they were doing it with a bit more conscience and effort. So you've got to be a bit careful. Okay.
So uh, the other reason I use sorry, just one last thing. The other reason I use a broker is um, there's a platform which I can I can look at my my portfolio at quickly. Uh, I also get uh, invites to all of the company presentations I want to go to. So stockbrokers, at least the larger ones, will have CEOs in twice a year, generally at least, after they've reported their, their reports, and you can go along and listen to them go through their presentation on on how their company's gone and what's happening in the future. Uh, this is that. And also, too, brokers have access to initial public offerings. So generally, the only way you can get access to an IPO is through a broker that was an underwriter for the for the stock that's being floated. And so sometimes I'll get um, offers to uh, to buy into some of those. Uh, and, and likewise with companies that currently exist on the market but are raising capital. And so to give you an, an idea of the benefit, this doesn't happen very often, but after the GFC, Commonwealth Bank, for example, had to uh, raise more capital. And I got offered uh, shares in the company. And I think the share price then was about, that I was offered uh, to, as a buy, was around thirty five. No, it was around twenty seven dollars, and now they're trading at around eighty dollars. So, if you didn't have a good relationship with a broker, you wouldn't get access to that kind of uh, off market trade as well. Paul's next question. He says the most undervalued top ten stock checklist item. How do you screen for that? Yeah, so that's probably something we'll do in the coming weeks. Now that a lot of the companies have reported, but I simply look at the top 10 stocks by market cap. And, and once we have their figures in, uh, I'll look at the, in particular what our future value is and I'll, I'll rank them by that and I'll, I'll buy the one that's got the biggest gap between its current price and what we think our, its future value should be. And so, if you recall, that was a champion challenger portfolio strategy that um, I've been doing for a long time. No, we'll say that again. What does that mean? That made no sense to me. What's a champion challenger what? Who? Okay, all right. So, well, we spoke about this once before, but but to go over it again, uh, at some stage in in my investing uh, career, and, and I was looking through valuing companies, I, I wondered whether a good KPI for buying a company was its difference between its uh, its what we think its intrinsic value will be next year and what its current price is. Mm-hmm. And there was some there was some advantage to doing that. Obviously, it's crystal ball gazing and you don't always get it right. But um, what I found was that if you took the top 10 stocks by market cap and looked at their what we think their future IV will be and then ranked them by the gap between that and the current price, uh, that was usually a pretty good um, buy signal for that stock. And then a champion and challenger strategy is to say that my, my champion strategy, which is... Uh, making up 90% of the portfolio or maybe even a bit more is the QAV checklist. But I do from time to time try other things and have a little, a little side uh, side bet, if you like, or an investment on the side in something else. And, the, and one of those is, or the other one that I use is this one about the top 10 stocks. But and that's that, a challenge. That's just... So if that, if that performs better than the main portfolio, you start to give it more, more room in the portfolio. That's what champion challenger means. Right, but... In our checklist, it uh, being an undervalued top 10 stock is just uh, one of the values that goes towards its overall score. Yeah, it, I think I think it's, it's probably wasted in that checklist. And, and it's in my checklist, but it's really just there as a reminder for me every company reporting season to look at what is the top 10 okay. most undervalued company. Yeah, so, so uh, in, some, in some cases, a lot of cases... 
it, it scores on the QAV checklist as well, but some cases it doesn't. So I could probably pull it out, keep it out of the checklist going forward, but just remember to do this exercise, which I'll be doing in the next week or so anyway. Oh, okay. So to get back to how you calculate the undervalued top 10 stocks, so you look at market the top 10 companies by market cap, which you can get in Stock Doctor, I assume. You can, but if you, it's also available on the ASX website too. Right. So yep. you take that list, then you look at the intrinsic values for each of those, our, your, your own intrinsic, forecast intrinsic value. Correct. And then you look at their uh, share price and yep. try and uh, if one of those companies is the most undervalued, if the company you're analysing is the most undervalued top 10 stock, then it's uh, worth a look at. It's a buy, yeah. Right. Yeah, so for example, the last the last one was Rio Tinto, and that went up, I think, about 30% um, in the last six months. And before that, it was CSL, and that's gone up a lot too. So uh, they, they get entry into the portfolio, even if they don't make the QAV checklist, um, no more than 10%, but generally this strategy works well as well over time. And if, if I'm thinking, I'm just thinking back through when we last discussed it, we talked about the investment ladder, where you start off holding an index of all shares mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you might want to put together a portfolio yourself by uh, just investing in the top 20 shares, which is really what drives the market anyway, what drives the index, because it's such a large part of the index. And then we said, if you want to take it further, then look at valuing those companies and, and buy the most undervalued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's the kind of history of how it evolved. Right. Uh, and it's worked out well as a strategy over right. time. And I think it's good. I think it's good to have a little bit of, um, you know, something in there which is challenging you as well, as to see if you can, uh, if your main strategy can be beaten. And right. Yeah. This one's always performed well, so it stayed in. But you say I should take it out. I think you should take it out of the checklist. Yeah, it serves no purpose as a, as part of the QAV checklist. Yeah, well, it's, it's just uh, there as to remind me to do it each time. I don't think in the six months we've been doing it, we've ever had one that's got a score on that. I think I think Rio Tinto might have, but anyway, yeah, one at the most. Oh, okay. Well, and there only ever will be one, right? It's there's only one most undervalued stock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we've done Rio. Oh, okay. I thought we. Uh, yes, it's on the watch list. Yeah, because you said put it on the watch list. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you look at the watch list, it says TBA under what episode we analysed uh, because right, we okay. haven't. That was just one of the ones that you uh, sent me an email about that we haven't actually okay. done together yet. You've done it yourself, though, obviously. Yeah. Okay. I think uh, I think from memory it scored about 0.09 on the checklist, and I think it I think it will also likely be the most undervalued, but I haven't done that exercise yet. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it out. Boom. Yeah. Gone. Good. Gone. Good. The checklist evolves. It does. Um, so Paul's, uh, well, he, he sent us a couple of emails with a ton of questions, but this is the last question from his first email because um, we're kind of running out of time. Uh, he says, Tony's checklist has prompted me to do further study on the measures of value he uses in the checklist. On this, can I ask that the checklist item growth of the earnings per share as a percentage divided by the PE uh, is this what's called NEF, the NEFF ratio after the investor John Neff 
being total return divided by PE. And if it is, should the ratio be changed? Should the rate, sorry, should the ratio be change in EPS plus yield divided by PE? He says that might be too complex for me, but it's all very interesting. It's gone right over my head, Paul, but let's break it down. Do you know John Neff and the Neff I don't ratio? No, I haven't I haven't heard of this one. There's a there's a couple there's a couple of versions of this out there, and that's probably the third one I've heard of. So that's the one I'm using uh, in the checklist. There's one which is called the PEG ratio, which is very similar. In fact, I think it might be the inversion of what we do. And then there's this this one I've just heard of now, the Neff ratio. Um, I, I wouldn't know which one works the best. And again, you'd have to sort of test it either forward test it through a model or regression test it, uh, which uh, you know, I would welcome anyone's feedback on if they've done that and how it goes. Uh, I, I, I just use this one. It's, it's one I came across and was easy to implement and it's, it's you know, served us well. So looking at Paul's question, they're not the same, right? So the one we look at is growth of earnings per share, which mm -hmm. is the current earnings per share uh, subtracted from the future forecast earnings per share, and then we divide mm -hmm. it by the PE. But he's yeah. talking about uh, change in EPS plus yield divided by PE, which seems to be right. the F ratio. So yeah, so he's doing the same thing we are, but he's yield. adding yield in. Yeah. Adding yield, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, uh, we, we throw it out to you to uh, regression test that against all the stocks in the uh, portfolio and uh, tell us what you get. Yeah. Or anyone else who wants to play around with that. Good. Good well, stuff. And, Thanks, or they might, they might have some citations about NEF and ratios and how well they've worked over time too. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for teaching us something, Paul. Good stuff. Yeah, and I uh, just just I, I guess just just on that, there's always going to be variations of all these things, and my checklist is, is mm -hmm. a variation of someone else's. So, on on specific items. So yeah, it's, it's there's nothing there's no good and bad or right and wrong in all this. It's it's what works for us. Yeah, like there's there's a million things that you can check for. Mm. You've just, you've you've ended up with a list that have worked for you, but. Uh, you know, doesn't mean there aren't other things out there. Hmm. But I think it's, I think, I think uh, the question is a good one. And I think it's the checklist uh, does need to have some kind of, you know, checklist uh, test for growth in there. And, and so I think as long as it does have one, whether it's an F ratio or the one that we use, it, it's probably not going to make a big difference on things. But yeah, that's a good, good question. Hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's uh, probably all the time we have for today, Tony, unless there was uh, some final comments you wanted to make about how good my singing was. Uh, I don't really think I got appropriate uh, pats on the back for that. Uh, anything else? No, thank you. I, I, thank you for the song. Thank you for your singing. And I hope you have another one to go out with that we can listen to as well. I don't, no, but I will. Oh, start me up or something. <laughs> Uh, no, I'd, I'd need to uh, chew my guitar to open D for that, which is going to take right. too long. Uh, but next week, I'll no doubt be thinking of you, sitting around thinking about you and writing songs as I do. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate oh, it. It was, uh, it was good. I hope that doesn't sound too weird and creepy, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not as weird and creepy as drinking twigs through a metal straw, if you <laughs> Hey, I've, I, you've been you've come up a lot. Ian Kath came over for a coffee on Friday, an old friend of mine, and 
He said, oh, I can't believe I still haven't met Tony Kynaston. You have to let me know. I think next time you come up to Brisbane, i got a handful of guys here who uh, listen to the show and, you know, they've heard me talk about you for 10 years who would love to meet you. So next time you come to Brisbane, we'll have to have a bit of a catch-up and uh, we should start planning catch-ups for our subscribers in Melbourne and Sydney over the next couple of months too. Yeah, good. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I'd like to meet him. We we often swap comments on Facebook and things, so it'd be good. Yeah, love, lovely bloke. You guys would get along like a house on fire. Oh, good. All good. right. Thanks, mate. Okay. Have a good week. You too. Cheers. Thank you.